Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I want you to grab your Bible and open it to the book of Ephesians. Grab your Bible or turn it on and find Ephesians, which is in the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Um, we are walking through as a church, walking through the entire book of Ephesians from beginning to end in a series called Walls Fall Down. Tell your neighbor, Walls Fall Down. Walls Fall Down. The entire book of Ephesians majors on the topic of unity. Unity with God and then unity with one another through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who has accomplished for us vertical reconciliation with God as well as horizontal reconciliation with man. Now Ephesians in its day was a warning and was a caution of a letter from the Apostle Paul who was in a prison in Rome to these Ephesian churches and it was a caution for them not to be divided. And today, as we read Ephesians a couple thousand years removed from Paul's day, I believe that the book of Ephesians stands as a stern rebuke to our church and to the church at large in America, specifically the evangelical church. By and large, white evangelical churches have avoided the topic of unity and have avoided, unfortunately, the hope of the gospel which is reconciliation of all things, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, that God, through the gospel, is uniting all things in heaven and on earth in Christ together uh, in, in unity. And the issue is that um, we can retreat and silo as white evangelicals into our comfortable white silos and avoid topics of race and ethnicity and reconciliation, you can be in a white evangelical church in America and never hear a sermon on race or ethnicity, which is unbelievably unfortunate. And the reality is, is that if Jesus, I believe, or the Apostle Paul was here today in our cultural context would be hammering over and over again unity together as the church in the world in which we find ourselves. I believe that if the Apostle Paul was here today, he would be beating this drum over and over and over again because this is the reality of where we find ourselves in this cultural context, in this cultural moment, and it is necessary that we engage it because the gospel has everything to do with unity in the world. Billy Graham, the well-known, famous evangelist of the previous century in America, found this this past week. He said this back in 1993. He said, racial and ethnic hostility is the foremost social problem facing our world today. It's a reality. Pastor Brian Loritz, an African-American pastor who now pastors in San Francisco, written many books on the multi-ethnic church, who is in many ways... Um, a significant key leader in this conversation, he says that these days that we find ourselves in America are the most divided days of his entire life. And the reality is that our country is divided because of walls, our culture is divided because of, our, of walls, and our church is divided because of walls. And in the gospel, we believe that walls fall down, that walls fall down. And we are at a specific moment that has an incredible opportunity together as believers to make significant impact in the culture in which we find ourselves. 
I love the way that Derwin Gray, former NFL player turned pastor, African-American leader and pastor of Transformation Church outside of Charlotte, he says this, in an extremely chaotic, divided America, those who are extreme in kindness, mercy, compassion, and love will shine like stars. My hope is that you and I, and I believe what Paul would say his hope is, is that we, as followers of Jesus, as followers of the way, as Christians, would be extreme in our kindness, in our mercy, and compassion, and love, not because it's trendy, or not because it's easy, but because this is what the gospel demands of us. And in so doing, I believe that we will shine like stars in this cultural moment. One of my hopes for us as a congregation is that we would be not only um, educated on the text that we read, but that we would also be educated on the context in which we find ourselves. Um, I've gone through several elements of history over the past few weeks, and I want to continue that pattern uh, today, specifically talking about Wilmington and the city in which we find ourselves. Um, I'm somewhat of a history nerd, you could say. I didn't... um, I don't have a history degree. I actually, okay, confession. Can we do confession? Um, the first time I took church history in seminary, I actually failed the class <laughs> and got in fight with the professor. But we won't go there. Um, we won't go there. Um, so I'm not necessarily good at history, but I enjoy it. Um, I was studying the history of Wilmington and specifically the church history in Wilmington. And as you know, that we have some churches that have been here for a really long time. We have some churches that have um, endured past centuries, is how long they have been around, who have um, endured wars, who have endured a civil war, have endured the Revolutionary War, have endured, they've been around for a significantly long time. One of these historical churches in our city is First Baptist Church, who I'm friends with the pastor there, Matt Cook, and we have a lot of friends that are a part of that congregation. Um, First Baptist Church, the original initial Baptist Church in Wilmington, responsible for uh, most of the churches that exist in our area who are Baptist churches that were planted out of First Baptist, which is downtown on Market and Fifth. In studying the history of First Baptist, I found the historical sketch um, uh, of part of the history of their congregation, and I knew that um, they had some history even going all the way back to slave days. They, they used to have actual slave pews and rows that existed in the back of the congregation, But I found this historical sketch, and it says this. I'll read it for you. From the records, it appears that from January 1845 on, the colored members held their meetings separately from white members. At least they held their conference meetings at a different time. On January 2nd, 1845, the use of the church building was granted to Brother A.J. Battle for the purpose of preaching to the colored people on Sabbath afternoons and with a view of collecting an African congregation. On May 26, 1845, two colored deacons, Harry Bergwin and Marion uh, Walker, were chosen for the colored portion of the church. Now, as I read that, uh, that shouldn't sit well with you. There should be something in you that kind of like um, has a hard time with that, that's a little bit challenged by that. The reality is that um, colored members in their day weren't actually really welcome and on the same playing field as white members of this day and were considered second-class citizens. And rather than be one church with one Lord and one baptism and one faith and one spirit, they thought that it would be better to do two. 
And so the reality is that now in Wilmington, we not only have one First Baptist Church, we actually have two First Baptist Churches that today, even, even today, exist five blocks from one another, the white First Baptist Church and the black First Baptist Church. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, prejudice was responsible for the initial segregation of the American church. But then, not only was there prejudice, um, a few centuries later, in just a couple decades or a few decades ago, prejudice was paired with pragmatism. Pragmatism just means the easiest way to do something, the easiest way to get the results that you want to get. So what initially was built on prejudice was reinforced by pragmatism. In the 70s and 80s, there was a... um, principle that was pervasive throughout the entire church in America, America, it was the principle called the homogenous growth unit principle. It's not specifically a Christian idea, it's just a sociological idea, and it's the idea is that like things attract. Homogenous means sameness. And the idea um, promoted by Donald McGravin, who's the father of the church growth movement, he made the claim, and he was right, that if you would plant a church or start a church, or have churches that would specify or, sign- or um, uh, make a target audience that you're trying to reach of a certain demographic, of a certain kind of people, a certain suburb or whatever, that would be the fastest way to grow a church. And he was right. And for centuries, the church in America has believed this and fostered this. And if you pick up a church planting book today, it is still one of the prime, um, you could say, motivations in church planting is to follow this same uh, principle. The unfortunate thing is that this would create in our culture an even more siloed culture and where Christians would learn to operate and exist in communities with only people that were like them which would then remove any kind of barriers for practicing reconciliation that needed to happen in the culture at large, and which would lead us to a moment that is still true today, that was true 50 years ago when Dr. King said it, is that Sunday morning at 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour of the week, unfortunately. And what Paul, I believe, would say, and what I am saying through this series, Walls Fall Down, is I'm proposing, and what I'm proposing flies in the face of centuries of church practice in our country, and what I'm proposing flies in the face of centuries of denominational tradition and of modern church theory, which means it is hard, and it's awkward, and it's uncomfortable. Most of us can exist in a church and spend our entire life in a church and never hear one sermon on ethnicity or race. And you're like, that's all we talk about at the bridge. (laughs) The reason that we're talking about it specifically right now is because of the text in which we find ourselves and the context in which we find ourselves. And so today we pick it up in Ephesians chapter um, 2, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and I want to build on what Pastor Mucci, our guest speaker, didn't he do a fantastic job last week? What Pastor Mucci did last Sunday, I want to build on that. And so we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, the unfortunate thing, he, I gave him, he's like, bro, you gave me like the best text in Ephesians. Why would, you, why would you do that? I gave him Ephesians verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you are saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's like one of the most uh, central verses in the entire Bible and gave it to him intentionally. But most Christians leave Ephesians there and don't continue reading. 
And the reason that we have to continue reading is because Paul is putting together one seamless thought for us. He's making a point that he's trying to get us to understand. The paragraph that we find ourselves in today, one commentator, he says this, this paragraph provides us the most, one of the most wonderful descriptions of peace and reconciliation in the Bible. One of the most wonderful uh, descriptions. And he would go on to say, um, it is for such reasons that this paragraph has been regarded as perhaps the most significant ecclesiological text in the entire New Testament. Ecclesiological is just a big word for church. One of the most significant passages, this passage that we find ourselves in, um, in all of the New Testament. I was originally going to walk through um, verses 11 through 22. I'm going to cut it in half or cut it part of the way. We're going to stop at verse 18 today because I don't have the ability to go all the way through. Um, Don't say amen, okay? (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. We've got to do some work, all right? You ready? Verse 11, this is what Paul would say to the Ephesian readers 2,000 years ago in which he would say to us as well. Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, based on everything that I just told you, based on everything that I just said, that previous passage, Ephesians chapter 2, 8, verse 9, remember that. He says, therefore... Because of that, remember that at one time you Gentiles, those of you who are outsiders, outside of God's people, Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, which is, they've been called that by the Jews, which is called by the circumcision, the circumcision party, the circumcision group, which is the Jewish people, which is made in the flesh by hands, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. At this point, you should say, what in the world is he talking about? At this point, you should say, I don't understand. Gentiles, uncircumcision, circumcision, um, separated, commonwealth of Israel. What's that talking about? Covenants, a promise. Uh, Break this down for me, Pastor Ethan. You're welcome. Here we go. If you go all the way back to the early passages of the Bible in the first few chapters of Genesis, you see that God had created a world and established a humanity that unfortunately turned on God and decided to be their own God and there would endure separation from a holy God. But God would not be done with them yet. God would pursue them and chase after them to recreate the kind of humanity that he wanted to create in the beginning. And so he would do this through a specific group of people, through a nation state that would have a father, Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Okay, we won't do that. But Father Abraham, and through Abraham, God would call him out from a land in which he was, send him to a land that God would prepare for them. And through this land, God says in Genesis chapter 12, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your family. All the, every, every people group, every nation, every ethnicity, Abraham, through you, one day, through you and your family, your multitude, large, huge family, through you, I'm going to bless every nation, every family on the face of the earth. I'm going to do it through you. Well, the story would continue as they would begin to create this family that was broken and messy, and they didn't figure it out very well. They would go through all sorts of different challenges. Um, they would even go through um, slavery and e- Egypt, and it's, it's crazy, the story that would unfold. And then Moses comes onto the scene later in the book of Exodus. Um, now that God has removed his people from Egypt and has set them on a new path in a direction to the promised land, they do not know how to operate and how to live as a nation. And so God institutes to them through Moses a law, a law in which would govern them and which would operate the way that this specific nation state, the nation of Israel, would live and operate as a specific kingdom, the kingdom of God. 
Now, why am I saying all this? Because it's important for, to understand what Paul is trying to uh, communicate in our passage for today. What is the purpose of the Old Testament law? I'll run through this quickly for you. Four uh, purposes for the Old Testament law. Number one, it was supposed to be a picture. It was supposed to be a picture. The law, the commandments, the ordinances, um, the commands of God were supposed to be a picture for Israel of what the righteousness and justice of God would look like. Um, Paul in Galatians chapter 3 would say that um, the law was a schoolmaster or a tutor or a custodian that was supposed to teach them what righteousness was like and what justice was like. Righteousness is right relationship with God. Justice is right relationship with one another. If you remember, this is amazing how the, the thread is woven through the entire Bible. Um, Jesus would ask the, the Pharisees of what is the most important uh, commandment in, in all of Scripture, and they would go back to the Old Testament and say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see what that is? Love God. It's vertical reconciliation with God, and then love your neighbor. That's horizontal reconciliation with man. Ephesians is only a continuation of that thread that is woven through the entire Bible. And I'm about to freak out because of how amazing that is. And, and, and so um, the, the purpose of the law is supposed to be a picture. It's supposed to demonstrate what righteousness and justice looks like to a people that have no clue what it looks like. There's over 600 commands. These are referred to as works of the law. He, uh, the law is painting a picture for them of what perfection looks like. Number one is picture. Number two is a border. In some way, shape, or form, the law would eventually function as a border that would consecrate God's people, this kingdom, from the kingdoms of the world, which would be the Gentiles. The Gentiles, the, the Greek term for Gentiles is the ethnos. It's all the ethnic groups that are outside of God's people, the kingdom of Israel. Gentiles would then be seen as outsiders, foreigners, and strangers. They, uh, the, the kingdom of God, the Israelites, would be distinctive because they operated in a certain way that was different and differentiated from the kingdom of this world. This is where circumcision comes into play. Uh, Israelites were supposed to circumcise males on the eighth day after they were born as a sign and a symbol of their distinctiveness in the world. Um, and we can't go down that road very, very much because we'll just get off into a bizarre area that I don't want to get into. But it was supposed to be a, a sign. Gentiles, by and large, didn't practice this. Practice. Israelites did, and it was supposed to be a sign. It was supposed to be a symbol. It was supposed to be um, kind of something that differentiated them from the other nations of the world. Number three, it was a mirror. By reading the law, by hearing the law, by looking into the law, you looked into the law as a mirror. You look back at yourself. It would expose your sin. As you looked at these hundreds of laws, you would see that you quickly didn't, um, um, you quickly didn't match up to the standards and the commandments of the law and the righteousness of the law. The law was in many ways like an indictment against you, proving that you didn't have the ability to achieve the righteousness of God. In fact, no one can achieve the law or fulfill the demands of the law. The design of the law was supposed to point out that you are insufficient to keep it and to abide by it at your best attempts, you fall flat on your face, and it's supposed to provoke in you a desperation that you are incapable of achieving the law, and you need something outside of yourself to save you. And which would lead um, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26 to say, Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the book of the law. It's, you're cursed. You're doomed for failure. You don't have the ability to save yourself. You can't muster up enough righteousness of your own in order to get to God. It's just completely impossible. The law would be a mirror, and then number four, law would be a sign. The law would be a sign. It, the law wasn't ultimate, but it was always designed to point to something else that was ultimate. 
the law, there would be a mediator. This was Moses. This was someone who would uh, receive the revelation from God and then dispense the revelation of God to the people. There was also a temple and temple practices in the law. The temple was a place that was protected enough for God's presence and God's power to dwell in. As well, there would be a high priest. The law would have a high priest who would enter God's presence, that would uh, enter the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people to make atonement for the sins of the people. And then we see that the law also included hundreds of sacrificial laws, ceremonial laws, sacrificial system, um, and the breaking of the law required a death sentence in which they would sacrifice animals symbolically as a demonstration that blood is required for not uh, keeping the law. And then Paul would tell us in Galatians chapter 3 that we are under the law. We are under the law. He would say that we're held captive, that we're imprisoned by the law, that we don't have the ability to achieve it or to break out of it, that we're essentially doomed, we're dominated by the law because we can't fulfill it. And so we either rebel against it or we try to obey it in our own strength, but we're doomed either way. And the law would create walls Specifically two walls. The law would function as a wall between humanity and God because they didn't have the ability to meet the requirements of the law in order to be justified before God. But then it would also function as a wall between others. Remember the border that I mentioned earlier. The, the, the laws and the regulations and the commandments and you could say the constitution of the kingdom of, of Israel, of God's people, would, would then create a wall uh, from them and other nations and other kingdoms of this world. Um, it would create um, within the Jews an unfortunate reality of pride and privilege because of their circumcision, because of their superiority. It would make the Gentiles feel like outsiders and um, really alienated from God, that they were strangers, that they didn't belong. And then this would creep into the church. This was the reality already in culture, but then this would creep into the church where there was a second, there was a tiered citizenship. There was a first-class citizenship of Jews and a second-class citizenship of Gentiles. And the Gentiles were regarded, um, or they automatically felt left out by a God and by his people and didn't feel as regarded by God as the Jews would. This was ultimately misguided in the way that the Jews would operate. And though they would pride themselves with their all their accomplishments and all their duties and all of their commandments and their circumcision and all these things, it would create in them a strong division between anyone who wasn't a part of their own ethnicity. And therefore, hostility existed in the first century. Hostility existed. You would walk by people that were different than you that weren't a part of your same ethnicity, and you would sneer at them because you had something that was superior that they didn't have. You would look at them, you would avoid them, you would make sure you didn't have, come into certain con, uh, ways of contact with them. Um, there, was, there, was a, there was a hostility. You, you with me? You feel that? Hostility that existed. And here's what they would do. They were bringing that hostility of the culture into the church. And Paul is writing to caution us on the, divain, the danger of this kind of divide in the church. Here's the reality. We all have a tendency to bring the world into the church. We all have a tendency to bring the world into um, the church. I, I grew up, um, 
when I was a kid, I was growing up, I was the oldest of four kids. Um, back in the day, um, the world in which we live in now, technology, I mean, iPhones, game consoles, I mean, it's just all over the place. Back in the day when I was a little kid, it was like you go outside, my grandma would lock the door and say, don't come back till lunch. She said, don't come back to lunch. And we would be out in the backyard playing. We had miles and miles of woods that were behind our house, as I've, I think I've told you in, in the past. And we would play. We would cut down trees. We would make forts. We would pick blackberries all over the place. And we would uh, come back ready for lunch or ready for dinner. And my grandma would look at us, and she would say, you're not bringing that in the house. She would say, you're not bringing that. In. You need to take those shoes off. You need to take those clothes off because you're not bringing that in the house. She's trying to demonstrate that what's out there doesn't belong in here. Am I preaching? You know, we need to, we need to um, recognize that there's some things out there that don't belong in the house, all right? There's some things that don't belong in the house, which means when we see it, we graciously and lovingly remind one another and encourage one another that that, that, does, that doesn't belong. There is something about the church, there's something about God's people that is supposed to be distinctive about the way that we operate. There should be something about walking in here and showing up at community group on Tuesday night that is fundamentally distinctive than every other group in our city. Something different, there's something unique, there's something powerful. They got something, and the way that they operate is fundamentally different than the way that we operate. Because we, 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 have, we have a different book, we got a different playbook, we got a different president, we got a different king. We've got a different God who governs us and, and who we operate under. And therefore, sometimes what's out there doesn't need to come into the house. And we've we got to be careful, and this is where it's so hard because we're, Jesus says, um, or, or the scriptures say, be in the world but not of the world. And so we want to be in the world and we want to engage with the world. We don't want to retreat from the world. We want to love the people that we are around, that are our neighbors, that are our coworkers, that are our friends, family. We want to be in the world, but we've got to make sure that, that the world doesn't come into us going to be in the world but not of the world and Paul's writing to this reality because they're bringing some stuff in that doesn't belong in the house he's trying to get them to shed the world to get rid of it to get rid get rid of it don't bring that in here and so he writes into this situation to these Gentiles and saying that there were some huge walls that stood um, against you against the people of God and against God himself and then he says this in verse 13 but now, as Pastor Mucci said, this is a divine but. That's funny. I don't care who you are. That's funny. <laughs> Pastor joke. But now, but now, which means he's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying there's something that's different now. But now in Christ Jesus. I can't imagine being a... Gentile hearing this for the first time. You've been discriminated against. You've been pushed to the edges and to the margins of church and community and leadership and your culture. You felt like a second class citizen. And a letter comes through the door. They open the letter and they say, Who's that from? They say, It's from Paul. What does it have to say? It says this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. At that point, they're looking at each other. What? What did he just say? 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, meaning on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. He tore it down. Verse 15, how? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, he's the fulfillment of the law, in himself one new man in the place of the two. At this point, they're still looking at each other. Really? So making peace, he mentions peace four times in these verses, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The gospel kills hostility. It kills hostility, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, meaning the Gentiles, and preached and peace to those who were near, speaking of the Jews. For through him we both, both have access in one spirit to the Father. The gospel kills hostility. The gospel is an offensive weapon that moves actively to tear things down that don't need to be there. And we should all be amazed that the gospel first and foremost has torn down the wall that stood between us and God. That there was a wall. There was a wall that you could not across. There was a wall that you could not scale regardless of who you are or what your past is or what your ethnicity is or what your background is. You couldn't scale the wall. It was too big. But Jesus tore it down in his flesh. The wall that stood between you and God. Jesus went on the cross in his perfection meeting every moral requirement of the law and stood in your place and took on your sin and shed his own blood for your forgiveness so that the walls of the law and your own sinfulness could be torn down. And you step in, you step into relationship with God. Jesus accomplishes for you peace with God and reconciliation with God. You were an enemy. You were estranged. You were a foreigner. You were an outcast. You were so far away, but now you're brought back to the Father and you stand in relationship with Him. The gospel accomplishes that. There's no more, praise God, a dividing wall of hostility between you and God. Do you know that God isn't hostile at you today if you're in Christ? He's not. Some of you think that God's agenda for your life is just to beat you up, to mess up your life, to confuse your life. In Christ, there's no hostility between you and God anymore. Jesus has already taken care of that. You have peace with the Father. He wants an abundant life for you. He wants an abundant life for you, a life that's full and free and rich and enjoyable and beautiful with him. Broke down the dividing wall of hostility between you and God. The gospel also broke down another wall, not a vertical wall uh, between you and God, but the horizontal wall that stood between you and others. Historians tell us that, specifically Josephus in the first century, that in the temple, there were various temple courts. The temple was the place where you would go to worship And in the temple courts, um, there were different courts for different groups of people, one of those specifically being the court of the Gentiles. 
The Gentiles didn't have the privilege and the opportunity to go into the inner courts. They were regulated to the outer courts of the temple. They were regulated to the outward um, sides of the sanctuary in the Jerusalem temple. And there were barriers, literally walls, that um, stood between them and other groups of people in the temple. Josephus tells us that there were notices that were written on the wall in Greek and Latin that were warning Gentiles not to uh, proceed past the wall because it would mean their death. Literal barriers that stood in the temple that prohibited the Gentiles from entering into the inner courts where Israel worshipped. It's interesting if you remember back to the story of Jesus and turning over the tables. Remember Jesus goes into the temple. He's, he's, he, has, he has rage. He has anger. What he is seeing is um, not acceptable in his mind for how people should be treated. He goes into um, the, the temple, into the courts where the money changers are taking advantage of people and laundering their own uh, or filling their own pockets with money for their own good. And Jesus goes in and it, one of the gospels says that he makes a whip of cords. This is like savage Jesus. Goes into, the, he turns the tables over and runs people out. Savage Jesus. And then he says, he quotes a passage in Isaiah and says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. We stop on the prayer part and think that it's about, and it is about prayer, but it's about a house of prayer for all nations, all ethnic groups. And Jesus is infuriated. And he goes in and he sees the kind of discrimination and he sees the kind of um, ostracism that's happening between the Jews and other classes of people. And he says, no more of this. It ain't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. And, and he literally throws, the t turns the tables over, and he's essentially breaking down walls in this moment. Quite a literal dividing wall of hostility. Commentators say that because Ephesus was quite removed from Jerusalem, they probably didn't have the same kind of understanding of a literal wall that would have been between the Jews and the Gentiles in Ephesus most likely that the real wall, or you could say the metaphorical wall that the uh, Gentiles faced in Ephesus was the law, or sorry, the wall of the Mosaic law. That was a border that stood against them, that separated them from God's people. And then the law um, represented a wall and a barrier between um, not only them and God, but also uh, them and the people of God. And the law uh, communicated that the Gentiles were outsiders, that they were strangers from God's chosen people. And they also communicated to the Jews that they would um, never be holy enough to meet the requirements of the law. But the law, nonetheless, stood between the, the Gentiles and the people of God and God himself. And Jesus says, or Paul says in the gospel through Jesus, that the gospel has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. All the law and its regulations and its commands, it's now done away with. He's torn the walls down. See, our natural tendency is to build walls, but the gospel compels us to tear those walls down. So let me do this. I could go further, but I need to land the plane. Um. The reality of the Christian community is that we should be a community of what Paul describes as peace. Peace that exists. Do you know what peace is? Peace is the presence of, of harmony. Peace is the 
presence of unity. Peace is when opposition is removed. Peace is when division is moved. And peace is when two parties stand in unity together. My wife and I, we have this practice whenever we have conflict, which is like once every three years. And we have this practice that's called um, restoring the relationship. Restoring the relationship. This is how it goes typically. Um, I am oblivious to her um, needs on a regular basis. Don't say amen. And what makes her feel valued, what makes her feel valued and regarded and makes her let her know that I love her and value her. And most of the time I'm oblivious because I'm more concerned about myself and my own well-being rather than the well-being of my wife. And that often provokes conflict in our relationship in which something will go down. And usually I pick up on the signs a little after the fact and then recognize that there has been some kind of wall that has been constructed between myself and my spouse. And at this point, I don't have any clue what I did, but I know I did something that caused that wall to stand. And then I rather, rather, I've got two options at that point. I can let that wall stay there and let that wall exist there and continue to live and to operate the way that I want to operate, or I can face that wall. I can face that wall, I can tackle that wall and try to begin to tear that wall down. And the way that you do that is through reconciliation. We say, well, let's restore the relationship. So at that point, we have to be at a place where we love one another enough to be humble enough to recognize that we love each other even in the midst of our challenges and differences and that we're gonna pursue restoration and reconciliation so that we cannot have any walls operating between us. Our goal as a married couple is to have zero walls standing between us. The reality is that some of us in the room today, not just in a marriage relationship, but in other relationships, have a, a number of walls that are standing between you and other people. And that can happen relationally with a friend or family members. That can, that can also happen ethnically speaking with somebody that's different than you, walls that you may not even be aware of that you've got to do the hard work of trying to figure out what those are and to pursue reconciliation with that person. Here's, here's the reality. Here's, I'll land the plane. Here's the reality. We have to, as a mandate from Scripture, operate as a community of reconciliation, which means when I make you mad and I offend you, you are responsible to do the work of pursuing reconciliation with me. And I must, as a humble Christian brother, um, get over my pride and address and recognize the areas in which I may have offended you and confess those and you must forgive and therefore enter back into a healthy relationship with one another. It has to happen in the church and it doesn't happen enough. Somebody makes you mad in your community group, you just switch community groups. Pastor said something that you didn't agree with that made you mad that offended you, you just left the church. We have to do the hard work of reconciliation. Reconciliation with one another. We don't get a pass. You don't get a pass because you're young or because you're old or because you're rich or because you're poor or because you're black or you're white or you're a majority population or minority population. We pursue reconciliation because that's what the gospel demands of us. And we have to be a community of reconciliation together. So when, not if, when I make you mad <laughs> and when I offend you as a fallen human man, that I am, we must pursue reconciliation with one another. 
And when that happens with the person that is sitting beside you or the person that's sitting behind you or the person that's sitting in the other section because you decided today not to sit in the same section that they're sitting in, you are required to pursue reconciliation with them. As long as I'm reading this right, it's, it's what it demands of us. Let's pray.